Good afternoon. I'm Pam Walls uh, from Community Legal Services in Philadelphia. And I have with me um, here today, Alyssa Halperin, who's formerly an attorney, a longtime attorney at uh, Pennsylvania Health Law Project, who we currently have as a part-time consultant working with us at CLS on nursing home advocacy. Thank you for joining us today as we talk about protecting nursing facility residents in this ter terrible time of COVID-19. Four months into the pandemic, we all know that COVID-19 is a devastatingly deadly virus. And everyone has heard from many news reports that long-term care facilities have been the hardest hit places. Um, this is because they are mainly um, the residences of older people who are especially vulnerable and who have pre-existing conditions. And these are places where people live in congregate settings and they receive intimate personal care, which makes it difficult to achieve any kind of social distancing. I want to share some long-term care facility-specific demographics and data to help set the stage. As of yesterday, there have been 7,122 known COVID-19 deaths in Pennsylvania. Nearly 69% of those deaths have been older adults and people with disabilities who reside in long-term care facilities. And specifically, 4,851 long-term care residents have died of COVID-19 since the pandemic began. Black and Latino nursing facility or long-term care facility residents are disproportionately effective. There's evidence that larger facilities are more likely to have COVID cases and that facilities in areas that are experiencing more community spread of the virus are also more likely to have COVID cases within their facilities. There's also some evidence that the quality of the facility is a factor in whether um, COVID enters a facility and spreads. Facilities that have lower Medicare star ratings um, tend to have more cases than those that have higher, higher star ratings. But even when you adjust for all of these factors, size of facility, where it's located, even quality of the facility, there's, there's still data that's showing a racial disparity. Nursing facilities with higher percentages of Black and Latino residents are more likely to have COVID infections than those which have lower percentages of Black and, and Latino residents. So that's very, very troubling. Some other helpful data to keep in mind for our discussion today relates to the long-standing problems um, in long-term care facilities. These problems predate COVID-19 and created an environment that was ripe for the disaster that COVID has created. In the years, in the recent years leading up to the pandemic, infection control violations were the number one licensing violation in nursing facilities around, around the country. So just to explain a little bit, nursing homes, nursing facilities are licensed and inspected by state agencies. In Pennsylvania, that work is done by the Department of Health. Department of Health sends inspectors who are called surveyors into facilities annually and then in, and also in response to complaints to do inspections, which they call surveys. They check for compliance with the federal and state regulations concerning how nursing facilities are required to be operated. And if they, if they um, find that a facility is not in compliance, they cite, the, they cite the facility for what's called a deficiency, a violation 
of the um, of the, the regulations. So of those deficiencies, the number one deficiency in the last four years has involved infection control. And that obviously has huge implications for how the COVID-19 pandemic has played out there. The, the GAO released a report in May that showed widespread and persistent infection control deficiencies um, prior to COVID-19. The GAO looked at inspection data for the years 2013 to 2017 and found that, um, again, infection prevention and control facilities were the most common type of deficiency. So this can include things like staff not using proper hand hygiene, washing their hands in between, res in between providing care for residents, things like that, or a facility not implementing prevention measures uh, to prevent spread once it has an infectious disease outbreak. 82% of nursing facilities nationwide were cited for an infection control deficiency at least once during that four-year period. And an average of 40% of all nursing facilities were cited every, uh, each year. Um, and half were cited in multiple consecutive years, which is a sign of a persistent problem in that nursing facility. Unfortunately, it's uncommon for enforcement action to be taken because um, these kinds of uh, deficiencies have always have been cited uh, generally as minor violations. They're considered no harm. They didn't cause any harm to a resident. And therefore, they're cited, but the facility can just create a plan of correction and say, well, here's how we're going to make sure we don't do it again. And there's no larger consequence to them. Only in 1% of cases was there a more significant enforcement action taken. So you can see how nursing facilities were at great risk for COVID to spread. Additionally, staffing shortages in nursing homes have been, an, have been a, an endless problem. Nursing staffing levels are closely tied to the quality of care in nursing facilities, but facilities tend to be chronically understaffed. And that's made worse now by the fact that staff are getting sick from COVID-19 as well as the fact that residents who become ill with COVID-19 have increased needs, which mean that they have a need for even higher staffing levels. In an effort to make nursing facilities safer and keep them staffed during the COVID-19 crisis, uh, many requirements have been relaxed and rules have been changed since March. So first, let's talk a little bit about the federal response. At the federal level, there have been a number of changes to Medicare and Medicaid coverage rules, including some to expand when care will be covered by Medicare or Medicaid. For instance, um, normally in order um, to for Medicare to cover uh, a skilled nursing stay, the beneficiary has to have had a three-day hospital stay before they enter the nursing facility. During the COVID crisis, um, CMS is waiving that three-day hospital stay. So a person who has a skilled need doesn't need to have had that hospital stay in order for Medicare to cover their care. They do, in order for Medicare to cover the care, they do need to have a skilled need as opposed to a custodial need. Um, but this is a big expansion of who can get Medicare covered in a nursing facility during the pandemic. Um, also, normally, if, if, if a person enters a nursing facility for skilled care, uh, they can only get their care paid for by Medicare for a maximum of, a, of 100 days per benefit period. But CMS has extended that and said that people can get another 100-day stay if their need for continued skilled care is due to COVID-19. 
CMS has also expanded coverage and increased reimbursement for telehealth under both Medicare and Medicaid. And they've expanded the, uh, the authorization for other professionals to do things that previously only physicians can do. So um, for instance, uh, now doctors can delegate um, certain kinds of exams to nurse practitioners and physician assistants, um, although they have to be um, supervised by a physician. These are just a few of many, many changes that have been made to um, Medicare coverage requirements um, during, during the, the pandemic. And I just wanna, um, in case this is of interest, I just wanna let you know that the Center for Medicare Advocacy has on its web um, webpage a really good advocates guide that goes through all of these um, changes in detail. One of the first actions that was taken to try to prevent nurse, uh, protect nursing home residents was that restrictions were placed on visitation by family and friends and also long-term care ombudsmen and um, uh, adult protective services workers and, and Department of Health inspectors um, to keep them from coming in. And of course, the reasoning behind this is to try to keep the virus out of nursing facilities. The idea being that people coming in are the most likely way for the virus to enter a facility and then spread. So since mid-March, family, family members and friends have not been allowed to visit residents in nursing facilities, except in really narrow circumstances generally only at, at end of life. They can have a compassionate care visit um, if, a, if a resident um, is, is dying. And we'll talk about a little bit about that um, a little later on. So this means that since March, um, residents have really been locked into nursing homes uh, and haven't seen their loved ones for months. Uh, CMS also instructed states um, inspection agencies to focus their, their surveys, their inspections, only on infection control. Um, just really, really focus like a laser on infection control issues and not on the many, many other things that they're normally checking to make sure nursing facilities um, are doing correctly. Um, so they're only going in to do inspect, they're only doing inspections for infection control and also for complaints if they, they have to allege that there's immediate jeopardy to the residents. So only complaints that are alleging that residents are immediate risk of, of serious harm or death. So this means that inspectors called surveyors have mostly not been in facilities in person um, since early March. And again, that's to avoid spreading the virus, but it's, it's concerning as time goes on that we don't have sort of eyes in the facility to see um, what's happening. There have also been some changes to the, the rules around when residents can be transferred. Um, there are really strong protections in the um, federal Medicaid statute um, concerning when residents can be moved within a facility or when they can be transferred out or discharged from a facility. These have been relaxed right now specifically to allow facilities to transfer residents within a facility for what's called cohorting purposes. And cohorting is a term for moving residents um, around in order to isolate people who um, uh, have tested positive for COVID or presumed to have COVID from others who aren't, who, are, who have, have tested negative or are presumed not to have COVID. So the idea of course is to isolate people who have COVID to avoid the spread. And this is one of the ways that facilities have been encouraged to try to limit the spread within facilities, within their facilities. 
The other possible way of cohorting is for people to, um, who, who are COVID positive or who are presumed to have COVID to be transferred to a facility that's set up as a standalone facility that's going to, during the pandemic, just be caring for people who have COVID. Um, and so when a transfer concerns that kind of cohorting, uh, CMS has relaxed the, norm the normal transfer rules to allow those transfers um, to happen more expeditiously. Um, normally, if, you're, if a person is going to be transferred out of a facility, they're, um, they're, they're required to receive an advance written notice about that, um, and it, it has to be provided 30 days in advance. But in this case, transfers are permitted um, uh, with notice provided just as far in advance as, as practicable, which is probably pretty close in time to when the person is actually going to be transferred out of the facility. Uh, CMS also waived some physical plant requirements to allow facilities to be flexible in terms of creating new rooms. So if they want to try to um, spread people apart, they can take common rooms, like meeting rooms, um, rooms like that, and create bedrooms out of them for people. Um, and it also allows them to use new facilities that weren't previously used for, for nursing facility services. Um, and um, there's a lot of concern about staffing during COVID. And so there have been a lot of, of uh, changes made in order to try to um, get as many um, nurses and other um, medical professionals available to work in nursing facilities. So one way that that's been done is that the federal government waived the normal training requirements for new nurse aides. Normally, new nurse aides are required to have 75 hours of training before um, in order to work as a nurse aide. Um, but that has been waived during the pandemic. And instead, a person can get eight hours, take an eight hour online course and start working in a nursing facility as an aide. Um, they are required to show competence, that they're competent to provide, uh, to do the job, but it's really not clear. There, there aren't really any standards for what that means or how nursing facilities are supposed to judge that. And we have a question. Okay, great. Um, on the prior slide uh, where you were describing the uh, change to the 100-day limit on um, skilled nursing facility coverage, the question is whether um, that timing can be extended if there is someone at home who is sick that uh, we wouldn't want the person being released um, back to home for exposure to that person who's at home. So I'm sorry, is that home already or in the nursing facility? No, if the person is in a nursing facility, can the, can the 100 days be extended because they would be at risk by being sent home? That's a really good question. Um, and what I was reading about this is that the guidance given by CMS has been a little bit unclear. Um, what I understand about it is that the need for continued skilled nursing facility care has to be connected in some way to the pandemic. Um, so it can either be because the person has COVID and needs continued treatment. Um, there's also some language about if the person is unable to end their benefit period and start again um, due to difficulty with, I guess, transferring home from a nursing facility. Um, so that, that's a long way of saying I'm not, I, I, I'm not sure. Um, from what I've read, I'm not sure that you can just for that reason, um, but I would um, encourage you to take a look at the advocate's guide, which goes into more detail and actually cites the, the various um, communications that CMS has had. And then people should keep in mind, of course, that they can always apply for Medicaid if they're, if they're eligible 
uh, to pay for continued stay in a nursing facility if they, want, if they don't want to go home and expose people. Alyssa, is there anything you want to add to that? Uh, no, not at this time. Thanks. Okay. All right. CMS, um, okay. Uh, one question that we got at CLS a lot early in the pandemic was calls from families who were really desperate to get information about what was going on in their loved ones' nursing homes and specifically to find out whether there was COVID and if so, how much in their loved one's facility. And initially it was really hard to get that information. Um, the state was not releasing facility by facility information. CMS then issued some clarification about, or some guidance about what was required. And now CMS um, requires nursing facilities, um, uh, first of all, to notify all families, their, rep their representatives and, um, and residents when a confirmed new COVID case is identified in a facility or when three or more residents or staff have a new onset of respiratory symptoms within 72 hours of each other. So the facility is required to let the, both residents and their, 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 their family members know um, when this is happening. Facilities have a lot of um, flexibility in terms of how they communicate this. They can do it either through an email listserv, a website, they can put it on their website, or they can send recorded phone messages uh, to families. And then of course, if um, a resident themselves um, is diagnosed with COVID, their representative and family must always be notified um, because that's a significant change in the person's condition. And so they should be notified immediately. So currently what's going on at the, at the federal level, um, uh, as I was saying, uh, there ha visitation hasn't been allowed since March. And as, and as time goes on, that becomes um, more and more difficult to sustain, more and more difficult for residents um, to, um, to tolerate not being able to see family members, especially difficult. You know, there are, are you know, many of these, well, there, there are, are residents, of course, who have dementia, who may not even understand why they're not seeing their loved ones anymore or why they're being, made to stay in their rooms all the time. And there's a lot of concern for their suffering, um, their um, probably inability to understand what's going on, and the cognitive decline that can come from that kind of isolation. Um, and so pressure is, is really building, especially as we see that um, COVID-19 is, is unfortunately doesn't seem to be going anywhere um, immediately. And so this is clearly going to be with us for a while. And so pressure has really built um, for new, new ways to enable um, nursing home residents to connect with their family and friends on the outside. So, the, so CMS um, released guidance to the states instructing them on how to go about um, what, what are called reopening um, policies. And we'll talk in a little bit about what Pennsylvania is doing. Another development is that the nursing facility industry um, is trying to um, secure for itself civil immunity um, uh, against claims um, for uh, negligence claims connected to um, the treatment, diagnosis, or care of, of COVID. Um, this is happening both at the state and the federal level. So at the federal level, 
a bill um, has either just been introduced or is going to be introduced shortly called the Cornyn-McConnell Safe to Work Act. And this would apply to nursing facilities, but also to a wide range of employers. And it would um, create immunity effectively by um, creating an exclusive federal right of action for all claims against a range of different employers um, and providers, including healthcare providers, including nursing facilities, for personal injury um, related to, to COVID. Um, so so um, plaintiffs would have to go to federal court and um, under the statute, they would have to make a showing of gross negligence or willful misconduct in order to recover. Um, this would apply to all actions arising between December 2019 and October 2024. So it's, it's civil immunity for a full five years. Um, there's obviously a lot of concern about that among um, advocates for nursing home residents. Uh, one of the uh, negligence cases against nursing homes are not incredibly, they're not super common, um, but they're a really important tool to um, uh, get nursing homes, give nursing homes incentives to comply with requirements and provide quality care. Um, and especially now when uh, in, uh, nursing home inspectors are not able to get into nursing facilities except on a, in a very limited way. Uh, we don't want to be taking another tool that can help uh, uh, create incentives to provide quality care off the table. So there's advocacy going on at the national level uh, to oppose uh, this bill. Pam, I'm sorry, this is Kelly. If I could just interrupt for a minute, I'm gonna be launching the first of two uh, poll boxes. This is for attorneys that are requesting CLE credit for their participation in this webinar. If you could please either respond uh, yes or no to the question, and um, the second one will be later on. Thanks, Pam, and feel free to continue. Okay, great. So what has Pennsylvania done to respond to the crisis? Uh, there, there are a number of different, different things that the state has done. Uh, first of all, they, made, they have made COVID-19 testing um, available at state testing facilities. Uh, after a delay in which information was, data was not available, they began making data available on their website um, uh, on a facility-by-facility uh, uh, facility basis. Um, of uh, showing data on cases across staff and residents. So there's a link there uh, for that data. And for each specific facility, it shows the number of beds in the facility, the census, meaning the number of occupied beds, the number of cases that there have been cumulatively among residents, the number of resident deaths that have occurred, and the number of cases among staff. So this is a really important place uh, to go to get information about what's happening in a facility. Unfortunately, there's ongoing, um, there's, this has not been perfectly done. Um, there are ongoing problems with this data um, and for reasons that have not yet been made clear uh, in a number of spaces where there should be data for um, it, uh, instead it says lack of data. This is, this is either due to facilities not reporting as they're required to, or a problem um, in the in the posting of it. Um, there's also there's also been problems with discrepancies in data between different sources between the federal um, information that's available and the state information in other places. 
Um, and also, in cases where in one of these categories the number is fewer than five, um, the Department of Health, which, which runs this, um, puts an asterisk under the theory that um, putting the actual number, one, two, three, or four, would somehow um, violate the privacy rights of the people involved, make it possible to identify them. I don't really understand that reasoning. Other initiatives that the state has had, um, one is they contracted early on with an or organization called ECRI. That's a non, it's a nonprofit health services research organization based in Montgomery County. And the Department of Health contracted with them to provide supports to nursing facilities in the areas of infection prevention and control. Um, nursing facilities are, you know, they're not staffed for acute care. They're not, they're not like hospitals. They don't have the same level of really highly skilled staff. And so staff there are not necessarily well trained on infection prevention and control and the other kinds of skills that you would need to try to prevent virus from spreading in your facility. Um, and so ECRI has um, provided con um, consulting uh, support to nursing facilities to help them beef up their abilities in those areas. Another initiative is the educational support um, and clinical coaching program. Um, this is, this is a, um, a learning collaborative that was created, it's, it's targeted specifically to personal care homes and assisted living facilities. These are licensed long-term care facilities that um, serve people at a slightly lower um, acuity level than nursing facilities. Um, but just like nursing facilities, they're congregate care places that house people with pre-existing conditions. And so these are folks that are at a lot of risk. And these are facilities that have really no medically trained staff um, on, on board. And so they're really at high risk of COVID spreading. And so the Jewish Healthcare Foundation, recognizing this, partnered with the Department of Human Services, which licenses personal care homes and assisted living facilities to provide educational support to these facilities in the form of webinars, um, web-based educational materials, and connecting them to clinical expertise to try to help them um, meet their residents' needs uh, during the pandemic. And we have a question uh, before we move to the next slide. Um, the question is related to the data that's published uh, and what is the frequency of the data? How often is it updated is the question that we are seeking. Uh, weekly is the answer to that. It's published each week. Um, other actions the state have taken. Um, so the first thing you need to do in order to try to get COVID under control is to test, of course, and find out who has it and who doesn't to try to um, keep people separate and from spreading it to each other. And so and the Department of Health, after a, a lengthy delay caused by difficulty sourcing enough testing um, materials, finally mandated baseline testing of all residents and staff in nursing facilities. That was to be completed by July 24th. Um, our understanding is that it was about 80% completed as of last Friday, which I think was the 24th, and that the department believed that um, additional um, information was coming in. So I think they were close to being done, but not quite. 
personal care homes and assisted living facilities also have to complete man, um, universal baseline testing by August 1st. So again, this is testing everybody in the facility uh, to find out on a given date who has, who, who, who tests positive for COVID-19. Um, um, concern with that is that the, the uh, is that the state's policy so far doesn't provide for regular retesting. You know, it's one thing to find out at, at one point in time um, who, who has COVID-19, um, but that, that's, that's something that's going to change, can change day by day. So in order to really um, stay on top of this, it's, it, it's essential to have um, policies for regular retesting. And so far, um, the guidance issued by the Department of Health only requires retesting in, in limited situations. So that's something that we need is a more rigorous policy on retesting um, in long-term care facilities. Uh, other actions the state has taken, $245 million in, in care funds um, were distributed to nursing facilities. Um, and the state also has issued state visitation guidance. Um, so as I was saying earlier, um, it is, it's become a, a, you know, increasingly a problem that uh, residents are isolated in facilities and can't see their loved ones. And also a real problem that people can't get into facilities and kind of have eyes on what's going on in facilities. Is, is, is there neglect or, um, occurring? Is good quality care being provided or not? Visitors to facilities um, and ombudsmen and protective services workers and Department of Health people going in have always been a really important way to make sure that, that um, there are eyes on what's happening uh, to create incentives for good quality care to be provided and to, and to raise the, the warning if it's not being provided. And that hasn't been happening since March. So um, the Department of Health um, has issued um, visitation guidance. The concern is that it's very, it's, it's restarting um, visitation in a really gradual way, um, too, too gradual for, for most, most residents and families. Um, first, in order to be able to start visitation again, facility has to meet a number of requirements. They have to have a plan, they have to have completed the universal baseline testing, they have to have certain testing capabilities. They have to have a plan for isolating or cohorting people in the event that they have um, COVID cases. Um, and they have to be in the yellow or the green phase, in, in yellow or green phase county, which of course would be the whole state now. So after the facility meets those prerequisites, there's a three-step process for reopening. Um, and at each step, the facility can open up a little bit more. Um, so from the, after the facility meets the, all the prerequisites, um, they enter step one, and at that step, um, there's not much of a change. Um, there can be some communal dining, dining with distancing for non-COVID um, positive residents. Um, and there can be some activities within the facility um, if there are five or fewer people participating and all of whom have to be um, COVID negative. So the facility stays in step one for 14 days. And during that 14 days, they have to have no new cases. If they go 14 consecutive days in step one with no new cases, they can move on to step two. And in step two, um, they can have, there, there's some loosening, including they can have outdoor visits now in step two um, with, with uh, precautions in place. Um, and if, if the weather is bad, they can have indoor um, visitation in, in neutral zones. Um, and then there's some loosening on activities and volunteers. And the facility stays in zone step two for 14 days. 
And during, again, during that 14 days, they have to have no new cases. If they have a new case, they have to start over again. They got to go back to the beginning um, and start over again with step one um, and stop, stop outdoor visits. Um, so after, after 14 days in step two, assuming they have no new COVID cases, they can move on to step three, um, at which point they can have outdoor visits and also indoor visits in neutral zones. Um, but if at any point they have another COVID case, they have to start over again and go back to step one with no visits um, and have to get 14 days um, in which they've had no new cases. So you can see the Department of Health is being very cautious here, and that is certainly understandable. Um, but the concern is that this is not getting visits to people quickly enough um, and that the, the good that the isolation, that, that the protecting people from the virus is doing is beginning to outweigh, um, to be outweighed by the harm done by people being so isolated in facilities. Um, so uh, advocates and family members have been pushing um, hard for um, more, uh, um, a, a more liberal um, plan to allow um, visitation. Um, in, in particular, um, there's concern that prior to the pandemic, one way in which people visited is family members would come in and not just come in for a social visit, but they would come in and provide actual hands-on care. They would feed their relatives, um, you know, provide other kinds of hands-on care. And that was one of the ways with, with facilities being chronically short-staffed that people could get enough care. And facilities actually rely to some degree on, on some family members doing that. None of that's been allowed to happen since the pandemic began. And so there's particular concern for what are these, these what are called essential family caregivers, that they be able to get back into facilities um, and that they, you know, they can be screened in the same way that staff are currently being screened and take the same protective um, measures in terms of PPE. Um, but there's a lot of pressure building for them to be able to get back into facilities and start to provide some care again for their loved ones. Um, another big development that has just happened in the last few days, or just gotten started in the last few days, um, is that the state is um, funding what are called regional response health collaboratives, or the, uh, otherwise known as RICPs. Um, and they just had a first webinar to roll these out last Friday. These are contracts with health systems, um, which were selected in each of six regions around the, the state. So health systems um, bid on this contract and they're partnering together to provide operations management and administrative support to long-term care facilities, basically to give them additional capacity to be able to provide good care and protect their residents um, from COVID. Uh, so in the Southeast region, for instance, Penn and Temple partnered together and they have one of the contracts, Jefferson and Mainline Health Systems partnered, um, have another one, Geisinger um, is partnering in another part of the state, um, UPMC, there are a number of different um, healthcare systems. And the idea is to bring the expertise from these um, healthcare systems into nursing facilities that mainly don't have it. Um, so the state has entered into contracts um, for these uh, partnerships to provide a range of different um, services with nursing facilities. They're expected to do at least two on-site visits at each facility in their area before December 1st, which unfortunately is where the, when the contract ends. They're going to be helping with achieving, with getting universal testing done, getting everybody tested. 
they're going to provide access to infection control expertise so that that can be done well in nursing facilities. Um, in the event of an emergency involving an outbreak in the facility, they would deploy rapid response teams together with the state agencies to go in and deal with emergent needs. Um, they're going to be helping get PPE, assisting with contact tracing, um, and a range of other things, helping get additional staff if needed. And they're also supposed to be providing some tech support to help um, communication between residents and families, like helping, helping facilities get iPads and things like that which residents can use to communicate with family and also you know helping the residents learn to use them and the facilities learn to, to to use them so that they can actually be used for visitations Pam, before we move to the next slide we have two questions on this one um, the first relates to the question about testing of residents and staff um, in facilities and the question is what about those places that have mixed levels independent living two skills uh, is it only the skilled sections that have the testing and reporting requirements? Yeah, for, for, for testing, um, there are different deadlines for, for the nursing facility part. They would have had to do it by July 24th. And for the, the personal care home and assisted living sections, they would have to do it by August 1st. If they have independent living, I don't think they would be covered by any of this mm -hmm. requirements. Okay, thank you. The second question is, um, do we know how the care funds uh, were distributed to nursing facilities? Was it a percentage per number of beds or, you know, do we have any more information on that? Yeah, we do have information on that. I don't remember it off the top of my head. It had, it was a certain amount went to facilities based on how many Medicaid beds they had. And then there was um, something else about how many occupied beds they had. If you, um, can reach out to me, I'll find that specific information for you. Okay, Su Susan, we will get that information out. Yeah. Okay, thanks, Pam. Um, other things happening in the state include, um, the governor did sign a civil immunity order um, here in Pennsylvania. Um, unfortunately, here in Pennsylvania, the one that he has signed so far was only for individual healthcare providers and not facilities. So, so far here in Pennsylvania, we do not have a state-based immunity um, order for nursing facilities. Also new this week, um, or not this week, but new recently, uh, is the Pennsylvania COVID-19 hazard pay grant program. Really important piece of this is the, the effect this has had on, on um, long-term care staffers. They're working in dangerous, difficult conditions. They don't get paid well. Um, they, don't have good, um, you know, they often have difficulty getting time off when they're ill. This has been incredibly difficult for them. Um, one one um, approach to trying to help them in this, it has been um, hazard pay. And so Pennsylvania has implemented a program where um, funding is available for a range of employers in, in what are called life-sustaining occupations to apply. Um, when they get these grants, what they can do is they can use the money to pay um, hazard pay to their employees who earn less than $20 per hour. Um, the grant is $1,200 per full-time employee, um, which is to be paid as a $3 an hour pay increase between August 16th and December 24th. So this is, this is you know, something of a hazard pay for nursing facility um, um, workers for whose employers uh, um, apply for it. 
And it's, you know, the reason it's, it's to, it's to recognize both the risks they're taking, the important work they're doing, and also the fact that we are asking them to not take risks outside of work. We're asking them to, you know, not go to parties, not go to picnics, to be careful so that they don't um, get exposed to the virus and um, bring it into a nursing facility. And for that, the, the thinking is that they, you know, they should get, get some additional compensation. Um, the state has also created a hand washing audit tool to help um, people do a better job um, with hand hygiene, which is so important. Um, things that are, are coming up right now in the state, um, there is an effort going on in the nursing facility industry um, to try to extend civil immunity to nursing facilities here in Pennsylvania. So that's something um, to watch for. That this is something that's happened in, in, in a number of other states. Uh, and the nursing facility um, industry is also, there's also an effort to try to make permanent the waivers on staff training. So if, if this went through, as I understand it, someone who got only eight hours of training would, be, would as, after the emergency period ended, would be able to stay on the job without getting additional training. And there's a lot of concern that, you know, while it's important to get people into the job right now in the emergency situation, um, it's really important for people to get the training they need. And so ideally people at that point would get an, um, some time to get the training so that they could um, um, then uh, continue to work. So what rights remain and what choices can, can um, nursing um, home residents exercise? It's important to remember um, that most of the, of the extensive rights in federal law from the federal nursing home residents rights violation um, remain intact and are still in, you know, still in force. Uh, residents have the right under federal, federal law to receive quality care, to, to participate in the creation of their care plans about what services they're gonna receive. They've got the right to be free from abuse, neglect, exploitation, and, and having misappropriation, having their stuff stolen from them. They've got the right to complain um, with, you know, to uh, file complaints without being retaliated against um, and they've got the right for the, uh, to have the facility make a prompt effort to resolve their complaints. They also continue to have the right not to be discharged or transferred except for certain reasons. So as I was saying earlier, if, it's about, if the transfer is about cohorting, some of those protections have been lifted. Um, but for other kinds of discharges or transfers, all the protections that are normally in place um, for nursing home residents are still in place. So they can only be discharged in certain limited permissible um, circumstances. And they've got the right um, to um, appeal if they get a, get a written notice and to appeal if um, the facility does want to discharge them. And they also have the right to a safe and orderly um, discharge to a place that can meet their needs if they are, trans uh, they are um, discharged. Excuse me, Pam, this is Kelly again. I'm just going to quickly launch the second poll box for CLE credits. It will be available for two minutes and feel free to continue. Thank you. Um, so what are some things that we as advocates can do for nursing home residents um, during COVID-19? Um, again, remember, you know, nursing um, facility residents have been mostly locked down without visits. Um, you know, in addition, they, they're not able to have activities within facilities. Those, those have mostly been halted because people can't come together 
um, this isolation is really devastating. Um, and, um, uh, and for this reason, there have been efforts here in Pennsylvania um, funded by AARP and also um, from civil monetary payments, which are fines um, imposed against nursing homes to get additional technological resources into facilities to support video calls between residents and their family or friends. Um, so one thing people can do is insisting that a facility teach a resident how to use these devices so that they can, and that they facilitate the contacts so that a resident can um, have video calls with family members or other, other loved ones. Um, advocacy can also include insisting that care plans be amended to outline how the facility is going to deal with the resident's communication needs uh, during the pandemic. Uh, people can also advocate around visitation itself. Um, I was talking about all the restrictions in place on visitation, but CMS's guidance on visitation um, does require facilities to allow what are called compassionate care visits. That's unfortunately been interpreted um, largely to only include end-of-life situations where, where the resident is dying and the family is coming in to see them really for the last time. However, that's not really, that's not CMS's intention um, to be as narrow as that. Um, CMS is, has issued guidance, um, which explains that it can be broader um, than that. It can, you know, for instance, it can be a situation in which um, a resident has had has has suffered the loss of of, uh, of a family member and um, is grieving in the nursing home. That could be an appropriate, you know, according to CMS's guidance, that could be an appropriate occasion for them to be able to have a visit um, to provide support from from family. Or there could be something that has been traumatizing to a resident, like if a resident is newly arrived in the facility and they're having difficulty um, adjusting to their to being there. Um, and they're suffering trauma from that, that could also be, according to the CMS guidance, an appropriate situation for a compassionate care visit from a family member. And these are not examples that are um, all-encompassing. Uh, all there can be other situations in which it's appropriate for a compassionate care visit um, to happen. And there's room for advocacy for that with nursing facilities and if necessary, if, if the facility resists with the Department of Health. Um, Another issue that has come up for nursing facility and personal care home residents is stimulus payments. Um, lots of nursing home residents, lots of personal care home residents, like the rest of um, everyone, receive stimulus payments and um, they are entitled to keep them. Uh, there have been problems nationally with facilities trying to get um, residents to pay them over to them and the facilities are just plain not allowed to do that. Uh, stimulus payments do not count as income in determining um, patient pay liability in nursing homes. So in other words, the amount that residents have to pay each month for their cost of care, um, that the stimulus payment does not count as income and does not have to be paid um, over to the nursing home. And similarly, personal care homes can't require residents to hand over their stimulus payments. So that's a great place um, for advocacy. Um, we have a one-pager on it. Um, the Department of Health, Department of Human Services have been very clear that this is not permissible and they will um, enforce that. Um, other, other ways of getting involved are helping residents with complaints around quality of care, residence rights, and inadequate staffing. And we'll talk a little bit more about how to do that. So yeah, we have, hang on, we have a question um, about advocacy to get people out of nursing facilities. Great question. 
Okay, that is that the question? Uh -huh. What about advocacy to get people out of nursing yeah, facilities? That's, that's a wonderful, wonderful question. Um, yeah, uh, certainly um, it, that's an important area for advocacy. People have the right to leave nursing facilities. It's important to have um, a good plan in place to make sure that where they're going, their needs will be met. Um, but residents, people have the right to leave. And sometimes they need advocacy with, they need someone to, to assert that right with the nursing facility to make it clear that they have the right to go home. Um, and to let them leave and, to and that the nursing facility has to create um, a discharge plan in order to make that happen. Um, other other um, issues that come up with around that are um, uh, using the nursing home transition program, which is a program that helps people in nursing homes transition into the community. You can get housing for people, set up services, um, and help them transition out. And so that's another, um, getting people involved in that and trying to push that process along quickly is another way to try to get people out of nursing facilities. Um, there's also, um, if people do leave, um, they can um, have their bed held for a certain period of time. I don't have that, that information with me. I can get it for people if they're interested. Um, they can have the bed help held and the Department of Health, I mean, I'm sorry, the Department of Human Services is extending um, the amount of time they will um, help people, allow people to hold their beds in case-by-case um, -case circumstances. Pam, um, can I add something on this point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Pam's going to shortly describe some advocacy work that's happening with a broader coalition um, making recommendations to the state. And one of the recommendations is specifically about um, issuing policy um, as well as funds and resources to support an expedited nursing home transition um, process uh, so that people who want to leave and perhaps whether they need to quarantine, you know, want to quarantine with family or get services established in um, in any home and community based setting uh, that is an expedited emergency um, response option um, that can be established for them. Uh, so that is a piece of policy advocacy that is happening and and we'll describe that advocacy more shortly. I should I should also say project is doing some advocacy is is engaging in advocacy in this area um, as well. Uh, so, um, how to take action on behalf of nursing home residents? Um, one thing you can do is contact the long-term care ombudsman. Um, these are federally funded, person-centered advocates for long-term care residents in nursing facilities, personal care homes, and assisted living. Um, they don't they don't have enforcement authority like the Department of Health. Um, but they're advocates for residents. They know the nursing facility regulations and they will know the administrator and some of the staff in the facilities so they can often successfully advocate um, to resolve uh, residents' um, issues. Um, you can find your local long-term care advocate um, ombudsman um, uh, by Googling it or through the AAA or on the Department of Aging website. They, re they make really wonderful partners um, in, in advocacy. Um, you can also, one, one, one way in which nursing facility residents come to legal services is um, when they've received a notice or otherwise been told that they're getting um, involuntarily discharged from their nursing facility. And going, I, this is sort of outside the scope of this to go into detail, so I just want to note, here are the regulations around how to represent someone, here's where you file an appeal, Bureau of Hearings and Appeals conducts those hearings, um, uh, 
um, I'm always happy to talk about these cases if you get one, um, about how to handle them and what the issues are um, that are involved. Um, there are hearings with the Bureau of Hearings and Appeals, which is a lot of what uh, many of us do. So it's a familiar, um, a familiar venue um, for us. Another thing um, that, that we can do on behalf of nursing facility residents is help them with filing complaints with the Department of Health when they are experiencing violations of their rights or poor quality care. And um, th there are a, a, a number of different ways to do that. I put the information in here. Um, there's an online complaint form that can be completed on the Department of Health's website, um, or complaints can be sent via email or in writing or on a hotline or a fax complaint um, or, or through a, uh, by, via fax. Um, in response to a complaint, the Department of Health is required to investigate. I should note though, right now, nursing facilities are only, I mean, I'm sorry, the Department of Health is only investigating complaints um, that involve um, uh, allegations of immediate jeopardy. So if the complaint is something where um, you feel the person is at real risk or other residents are at real risk, it's important to highlight that, to make it clear that this is an immediate jeopardy situation and the Department of Health needs to get in there and find out what's going on and take action. So the few moments we have left, we wanna talk a little bit about um, improving on where we are. Um, there are a, a, a lot of changes um, that are needed. We need um, the visitation policies um, to be revised, to be a change from prohibiting all visitors uh, and in a very, very slow reopening process to a policy that will have procedures to safely permit um, a, a return to visitation in, in, um, soon. Um, we need, reporting of data needs to be improved. Um, the, da the data accuracy needs to be, to be improved. Um, and expanded. We need information about what's happening um, in terms of um, the race uh, and gender of people who are affected. We don't have that information publicly available right now. Um, we need staff and resident testing and importantly retesting strategy to be adopted um, uh, so that we can have um, better early detection and a swift response when infections do occur. We need better infection control procedures. Um, and, and, and as always, we need um, adequate staffing. The Department of Health is in the process of revising its nursing home licensing regulations. And um, that's one thing that, that we're gonna be focusing our advocacy efforts on. And one of the really important pieces of that are the regulations around required staffing levels in nursing facilities. They're too low everywhere. They're too low in Pennsylvania. An important goal is gonna be increasing um, the staffing hours required um, in nursing facilities. Um, so we're part of a larger advocacy effort to improve care for residents. We're part of a coalition of advocacy groups that's been meeting. It includes um, the Pennsylvania Health Law Project, Disability Rights PA, um, and, our, and a number of other organizations um, we've been doing, we've been meeting and working on um, a number of advocacy projects, including developing a list of recommendations for the state about how to better protect uh, residents, um, meeting the state officials about that, 
Um, we drafted some comments for the Federal Coronavirus and Nursing Homes Commission. Um, and we're um, drafting a position paper um, on with recommendations. And as I said, we're planning advocacy around nursing facility licensing regulations as they get um, revised. We were fortunate um, to get plan funding um, through, the, through the CARES Act um, to do this advocacy um, and also to provide technical assistance to the plan network. Um, we're, we're partnering in, in this nursing home advocacy work with um, folks at Mid Penn and North Penn as well. Um, and we have um, the grant runs through November 30th of this year. Um, so um, we want to get information out about um, nursing home issues and advocacy and the kinds of things that legal services attorneys and paralegals and um, case handlers um, may see and could um, could work on uh, and also to um, to say that um, we want to be available um, as technical assistance. So please feel free to contact me um, if you have any questions um, at all about things connected to, to nursing facilities or personal care homes or assisted living facility. We would really um, like to be in touch with you and um, provide any information that I can about, about that. We're at one with 59. Alyssa, is there anything you want to add? Uh, nope, not at this time. All right. So thank you very much um, for joining us today. And I will hand it back over to Kelly. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Thank you to Pam and Alyssa for the great information. And everybody have a great day. <laughs>